I'm going to cut right to the chase. It is your name or Jesus' name. It's your fame or Jesus' fame. Our lives are either oriented toward making our names great or making Jesus' name great. One of those pursuits, as we'll see today in God's Word, is an exercise in futility. The other is the course of faith. So today, I want to call you to lay your name low and to lift Jesus' name high. I want to call you to exalt Jesus, as that's what this passage calls for us to do. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you, invite you to turn in your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 10. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 7. And while you're turning there, I want to remind us of the context in which our passage comes. It's important for us to keep this in view as we work our way through the book of Genesis. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we learned that God created everything and everyone for His glory. He gave the first man and the first woman life, labor, and love in a beautiful garden sanctuary. Of course, Adam and Eve, they threw it all away. They threw it all away when they threw off God's rule, His commands, disobeying God's commands, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even in the face of such rebellion, God promised redemption. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that one day He would send a seed, by which He meant a son. He would send a son who would crush the head of the serpent, thus defeating sin and Satan and death. And the rest of the book of Genesis reveals how God is working that particular promise out, how He's going to send His seed and son. And having this promise in view is crucial to understanding really the rest of the book of Genesis and the passage that we study today, Genesis 10 and 11. I want to ask you to look over these chapters with me before we look at them in detail. Uh, in these two chapters, we see a long list of names. Do you see the names listed there? These two chapters and the long list of names will not make sense if we don't recognize or remember the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, with the promise that God's seed and son would come and save his people from their sins. That this is the driving inspiration for Moses' writing. We'll also be helped to understand these two chapters if we remember that a, a sad but saving pattern is emerging in the book of Genesis. Rebellion brings ruin and then redemption. So we saw in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve's rebellion, it ruined their relationship with the Lord. And so he thrust them out of the Garden of Eden. But not before promising them redemption in his son. Then it happened all over again. Rebellion against God grew and grew until it brought ruin upon the whole earth in a flood of judgment. Still, God kept his promises of redemption alive through Noah, saving him in that ark, rescuing him and his family. And in our text today, we're going to see that pattern repeated. Rebellion, ruin, and redemption. And in our last study of Genesis 9, in Genesis chapter 9, we saw Noah begin again. He was given a commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis 10, we get names of people and names of places scattering all over the earth. We'll unpack that chapter more in just a minute. But flip over to Genesis chapter 11. You see chapter 11 there? The first nine verses, we get this famous Tower of Babel incident where once again we learn of rebellion against God as mankind tries to build a tower up to heaven. Man's plans are ruined by God. In an act of judgment, God smashes their hopes and scatters them across the earth and sending them out with different languages. 
This is immediately followed by another list of names. Do you see that list of names there in verses 10 to 32? This list of names following the tower, the line of Babylon, is the line through which redemption will come. Rebellion, ruin, and redemption. As we look at these two chapters, I trust that we'll see that God's patience with us is astounding. His purpose is to redeem sinners in the face of our rebellion is merciful and kind. It's why we should make His name great and not our own. Beloved, this is the message of Genesis 10 and 11 that we're going to look at today. God will make His name great among the nations. And so what should our response be? Simply this. We should leave our rebellion behind. We should escape the ruin that will come in God's judgment. We should embrace His redemption in His Son. We should make God's name great. You should make God's name great in your life. God did not place you on this earth to make your name great, but to make His name great. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about from these chapters. We'll unpack these chapters under three headings and three sections. One, rebellion, spread of sin among the nations. That's what we'll see. Then we'll see ruin and the subversion of God's name by the nations. Third, redemption, the salvation of the nations by God's Son. I think there's an outline provided there for you in your bullets, and I hope that'll help you follow along. But let's begin with our first point, rebellion, where we see the spread of sin among the nations. Take a look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Just one verse for now. Verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now this verse is what scholars call the table of nations. It's the beginning, the introduction to this table of nations. That's a crafty way of summarizing the genealogies that we find in these chapters. And what is perhaps most important for us to recognize about this table is that all the nations descend from one man, Noah. These three sons that we see listed here, they come from Noah. And from these three sons come the rest of the world. This is so important that this truth is echoed at the end of Genesis chapter 10. Skip down to verse 32. You see verse 32 there? Moses writes, Moses the author of Genesis writes, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. There's an important implication of the fact that Noah is the source of all the nations of the earth. And it's this. We, we're all related. Meet your worldwide human family. Yes, we've come from different ethnic backgrounds, and we speak different languages. These two chapters are going to make that clear. But don't push aside too quickly the fact that we're all related. We're all made in God's image. And therefore, we should be careful not to presume any kind of ethnic superiority or pursue any kind of ethnic partiality. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We should celebrate our diversity. We should celebrate the beauty of each of our languages, our heritages, our customs. And we should celebrate our unity, our common humanity. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says this, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Did you hear that? We're all descended from Adam and, of course, after the flood, from Noah. But did you hear what Acts 17.26 said? That God determined the nation's periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. 
In fact, this table of nations is a kind of map of the world for Israel. Moses was writing to the people of Israel. Uh, and they were standing at Mount Sinai, looking forward to heading into the promised land. And Moses kind of gives them a map of the world. This map starts really from the furthest point away uh, from an Israelite perspective. So take a look at where the descendants of Japheth, in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 10, you see that verse there? From the, these coastlands, peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. So the people of Japheth, they go to places like Europe and Asia Minor. These people would eventually become Greek and Scythian peoples. What about the sons of Ham? Look at verse 6. Next verse there. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Some of these names, they, they sound like nations, of course. And that's because they will become those great nations. So all these names and nations in verses 6 to 20 uh, are settled roughly in the North African and the Mediterranean region, as well as the region that the people of Israel will eventually call home, these Canaanites. Skip down now to verse... Um, 30, 31. Here we see where some of the descendants of Shem are settled. Uh, Shem's descendants are actually broken up by the tower narrative in the middle of it. Uh, and I'll, I'll explain why that's the case in due time. But anyway, here we see where some of the descendants of Shem, Shem were um, living, particularly the grandson of Eber, his grandson there, verse 30. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of uh, Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So these, they, they settled in kind of Arabia and Mesopotamia. Now this table, as I said, is kind of a map of the ancient world. And one of the things that the scriptures teaches is that God determines where all peoples are settled. So listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. Moses writes there in Deuteronomy 32, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, notice that that's God giving the peoples their inheritance. He's in charge. God gave the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, Moses is probably actually commenting on what we're reading here in Genesis 10 and 11. And what he's saying is this, is God allocated to the nations their places on the earth. Beloved, let us never suppose that the ordering and arranging of the world was random. God's hand has been involved in the great sweep of redemptive history. And all of these peoples, all of these names, all of these nations matter to him. Uh, these names and nations in this list are divinely designed and ordered. In fact, there's a symmetry to this list. Uh, the list itself begins with three sons. And by the time that we get to the end of chapter 11, we'll see that it ends with three sons. With Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Genesis 11:27. So the, the table of nations begins with three sons, and it ends with three sons. And in between, Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, we see that Japheth, he has seven sons. Now only two of his sons are elaborated on, and they have seven sons. And so, uh, you see there in verses 3 and 4, Japheth's sons are listed in two sets of seven for a total of 14. What happens next is Ham's descendants are listed for a total of 30. Moses, you see, loves threes, sevens, and tens. But since Japheth's sons account for 14 and Ham's sons account for 30, that brings us to a total of 44, those who are doing math. So how many sons do you think that Moses is going to list for Shem's line to get to the next ideal number? Where 44, he adds 26. Shem's descendants number 26. And that brings the total number list of the table of nations to the nice ideal number of 70. 
So what's the point of this symmetry? Moses is carefully arranging the list, giving shape to underscore the fact that God's hand is at work in the world. These names and nations are under his control. Remember, this book of Genesis, written to Israel, standing on Mount Sinai, preparing to march into the Promised Land. So when the first audience of this book heard this symmetrical arrangement of this nations, these nations, they would have realized that this is Yahweh's world. He's in charge of it. They would have been emboldened to obey the commands of God, to enter into Canaan, believing that He would indeed give them the land that He promised to His people. Christian, you should draw hope from this too. If God ordered and organized this world and eventually made good on His promise to give His people a good land, then you can trust that God too will make good on His promises to you. Uh, Jesus has gone ahead, even now, preparing a place for you, and one day, He will bring you to Himself. Just as the ancient people of God received the promised land of Canaan, even fighting off enemies as they made their way through, made it home, you too, you will make it to the promised land of heaven. And yes, you're going to have to fight off enemies as you go. You're going to have to fight off the world, the flesh, and the devil. But just like the people of Israel made it home, Christian, you will make it home too. This is your God. He's in charge of this world. Speaking of the land of Canaan, some of the nations in this list are, are mentioned for the purpose of underscoring kind of the sins of the nations. If you've read through this chapter before, then you know that there are actually some kind of digressions, some brief digressions in this list of kind of straight names. Take a look. There's a digression on Nimrod. Everybody loves that name. Nimrod. Genesis 10, verses 8 to 12. You see those verses? Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Cod, and Kalman, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. So, why do we have this kind of diversion, a little bit more on Nimrod than we get on other people? Moses, I think, is preparing us to see and to take in the rebellion of mankind at the Tower of Babel. Nimrod is declared a mighty man there in verse 8. Uh, remember that the trouble kind of with the worldwide flood began with those mighty men in Genesis chapter 6. Moses is signaling to us that Nimrod is kind of full of trouble. Those mighty men were those who kind of broke the camel's back before the Lord flooded the world with judgment. So he's warning us about Nimrod. And not only that, but Babel is mentioned there in verse 10. Babel, we're going to see, is a, a place of judgment, a place of rebellion. But actually, as the Bible unfolds, Babel becomes Babylon, the great enemy of the people of Israel. That's to say nothing, actually, of Assyria or the rebellious Ninevites that needed the prophet Jonah to come and preach repentance to them. With the spread of the nations, we're seeing the spread of sin among the nations, among mankind. And that's the reason for these digressions. The Canaanites, they're mentioned there in verses 15 to 20. We'll later learn in Genesis that God was going to expel them from the promised land of Canaan for their exceeding wickedness and evil. They would be long-standing enemies of God's people. Skip down to a minor digression there in verse 25. You see Genesis chapter 10, verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Uh, Peleg, you see there, his name means division. So, why would Moses 
say that the earth was divided in Mr. Division's day. Well, again, the context is key. We're about to get the kind of division of the earth at the Tower of Babel. Moses is preparing us for that dramatic event and judgment, ruin, by dropping these little hints about mankind's rebellious nature. And I'm convinced that's why Moses virtually repeats verse 1 in verse 32. Remember when we read verse 32 earlier? We noticed the unity of mankind at sources in Noah was underscored. But now we're prepared to see really another implication about this unity of mankind. Yes, we're related, but we're also all ruined by the fall. The significance of the fact that all mankind is descended from one man is that just as sin was passed down from Adam to Noah and his sons, so Noah's sinful nature was passed down to his sons and their sons, which is to say, everyone in the world. You understand what I'm saying here? Not only are we united in our origin, we're actually united in our opposition against God. Let's turn and consider our second point. Ruin. The subversion of God's name by the nations. This is what we would have all participated in if we were there at Babel. We see this in Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 to 9. Follow along as I read. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from east, from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there, over the face of all the earth, And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Here we see the subversion of God's name by the nations. Now, sometimes people are tripped up in their Bible reading at at kind of this point. right? We've just read... Genesis 10, that a bunch of people were dispersed across the face of the whole earth with different nations and languages. And now we're reading the whole earth having one language and being in one place. So so what's going on here? Well, the short answer is that Moses is telling the story out of chronological order. Uh, The events of chapter 10 and the dispersion of the nations recorded there took place actually after the Tower of Babel, the event that we just read in chapter 11. This is what scholars call dyschronology. But there's a reason for telling the story out of chronological order. There's a reason why we have the Tower of Babel in the middle of the table of nations. And it goes back to Moses' purpose for writing the book of Genesis that I mentioned earlier. Moses wants to be clear that God's saving purposes are found in his seed, in a particular offspring that comes from a particular tribe and people. So he breaks apart the table of nations, sets them apart to shine a spotlight on the tribe, the people, through whom that seed and offspring will come. 
And this is going to underscore that it is God and God alone who brings redemption. He is the one, the only one, who can bring men up to heaven. And he'll do it through his son. He will make his name great. But we first need to look at the ruin that we see here in the Tower of Babel. As Moses begins to tell us this tale, he notes that people migrated from the east. Do you see that there in verse 2? Migrated from the east. In the Bible, when people are moving east, they're typically moving away from God. We also learn that the peoples of the earth found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now that's actually in direct contradiction to the Lord's command to Noah and his sons in Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. They were told to fill the earth. They were told um, to spread out across the earth, not to settle down into one place. And friend, if you were kind of chafing at the idea, I mentioned earlier, that we're all rebels against God, for this is what I'm talking about, that we all decide to live our own way rather than God's way. That's what these people are doing. Instead of obeying God's commission in Genesis 9-1 to fill the earth, they decide, no, 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 we're not going to spread out, we're going to settle down. We're going to do what we want to do. The dispersion in chapter 10 was not done in glad obedience, but divinely directed as a consequence of man's disobedience. And notice the rebellion that emerges in some godlike language. You see there in verse 3 the language that people use? They, they say, let us make and let us build. That language should remind you of what the Creator said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. The people are planning to act like the Creator. And isn't it interesting that they think they've got all that they need. They've got bricks. They've got fire to burn them and solidify them. They've got mortar. They've got all they need. Or so they think. Do you remember what Psalm 127 verse 1 says? The Bible says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now it's not wrong to exercise dominion in the creation. It's not wrong to build. In fact... It was part of the commission the Lord gave to man. That said, it is wrong if the building is an attempt to displace God. Notice the the purpose of the building there in verse 4. You see verse 4? We read these words. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They want a place in the heavens to rule from the heavens. They take God's language and they try to take God's place. They're attempting to displace God and throw him off his throne. Have you ever attempted to build without the Lord? Perhaps a home, a career, a relationship, a public image. If you're building without the Lord, you're building without the one you need most. Have you ever considered that how you go about building in your life might be an attempt to displace God? That's especially true if you're attempting to build without Him. We can actually pursue good things, like building, in bad ways. When we do, that becomes an attempt at displacing God. Whatever it is that you're trying to build in your life, does it push God to the edges or put Him in the center? Those in Shinar want to build a tower and take God's place, His throne in the heavens. They also wanted to take God's praise, the glory and honor that was rightly due to Him. You see... At the end of verse 4, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. That idea in the Bible, making a name, making ourselves prominent, really belongs to God alone. 
The goal here is to reduce God's name and to raise their own name. It's wrong to take the Creator's place. It's also wrong to take the Creator's praise. That's what's happening. The Bible says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. They want to exalt their name rather than exalt God's name. And they're humble in the end, aren't they? The chief end of man, as one great catechism puts it, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Your first calling and vocation as one made in God's image is to give Him the glory that's due to His name. So Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. Psalm 96.8, ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. 1 Chronicles 16.29, ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due His name. Over and over again, the Scriptures teach us to lower our names and to lift up the Lord's name. Remember Jesus, because He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name. You see, the way up in God's world is not through your working. It's through your worshiping Him. The way up is down on the ground before the Lord in humble worship and glad obedience to God. Now, if you're a diligent worker in this world, and as a Christian, you should be a diligent worker in this world, seeking to bring God honor and glory through your work. If you're a diligent worker in this world, then there may inevitably be times when your name is praised. What do you do when someone congratulates you on a job well done, on a game well played? What do you do when you're lauded before others? Perhaps after a good exam, a good surgery, enacting good policy, arguing a good case. Are you so bold as to give God the praise that is due to His name? Will you say something like, you know, all praise belongs to God. It was a privilege to serve, and it was the Lord God who gave me the ability, though with the wisdom, the skill, the insight, the energy, to accomplish that task. Those of you who work hard at home, I pray that you're rightly honored too. And when you are, make sure that you point to the Lord and praise Him in the presence of your children. Show them who is to be praised. Beloved, Christian, whatever station or place you are in life, work hard. And when your name is honored, honor the Lord's name in return. The people of Shinar sought to take the Lord's place. They sought to take the Lord's praise, but there was another motive at the end of verse 4. Do you see it? You see in these words, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, we already know that actually happens, doesn't it? They actually don't get what they want. But do you see their fear? They're afraid of being spread out and dispersed. This actually sounds a lot like Cain in Genesis chapter 4, when he was afraid of being a vagabond on the earth. Again, this is exactly contrary to what God told us. Uh, Noah and his sons to do. They were told to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God sent them out. They decided again to settle down. They think that they know what's best and what's best for their safekeeping, but only God knows what's best. Many think that um, this tower was an attempt to build kind of an ancient religious structure, kind of a, a stepped pyramid, as it were. Some suggest they were trying to actually gain access to God, to be able to relate to God. But I think that that's actually to put the matter too nobly and too mildly. This is rebellion. All the signs point to the rebellion from taking the 
creator's language of let us, trying to take the creator's place, trying to take the creator's praise. Other scholars, it's actually possible to recognize this tower was something of a defensive fortress. Whatever the case may be, the whole endeavor encompasses an attempt to take God's place and praise and to ensure protection without him. That's why it's so striking to read these words in Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Isn't that interesting? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Beloved, safety is not ultimately found in the things we build on this earth, the alarm systems we put on our houses, the gates maybe we put around them. Safety is not found in making our names great. It's not found in large bank accounts. It's not found in well-established careers or well-fortified cities or nations. Safety is found only in the Lord. If you want to be safe, you need to run into the sovereign. He and he alone is the strong tower. And as we see in verses 5 to 8, in love and in mercy, God frustrates the rebellious plans of unified man. You you realize here that people at Babel are presented as one man, the, the children of man, kind of encompassing them as a whole. The nations, they, as one, sought to subvert God's rule. But God ruins their plans. The Creator condescends. Did you notice that in verse 5? This tower was so tall that the Lord had to come down just to see it. They wanted to build a tower up to the heavens. But the God who reigns in the heavens had to come down just to see it. Maybe a kind of uh, apt analogy of what Moses is trying to explain here. It's one of those tiny anthills that kind of crops up in my backyard from time to time. Like I'm walking across the yard, or something out of the corner of my eye, I see, what is that? Oh, I've got to go over and look at it. And I bend down to look, and it's one of those anthills. Look at those cute little guys. But it's an anthill in my backyard. I gotta, I've got to ruin it, right? I've got to destroy it and deal with it. Now, all analogies break down, uh, but you, you get the point, right? Moses is using human language to explain that the tower though from a human perspective was tall, from a divine perspective was tiny. Not only that, but God was coming to confront their rebellion. It's not as though he was unaware of it. This is just like when God came to Adam and confronted him after his rebellion in the garden. Just like he came to confront Cain after his rebellion and killing Abel. This coming down is a coming in judgment. And to be clear, God is not afraid of man. He recognizes man's, mankind's terrible ability to conspire together for great wickedness and depravity. But that doesn't mean that God is afraid. No, what it means is that his decision to break up this kind of corrupt collective was an act of mercy toward them. Their actions sound a lot like what was happening before the flood. Wickedness was escalating. God has seen this before. And instead of allowing the wickedness to increase, he purposes to put a stop to it. He's a kind and heavenly father who knows that allowing men to continue on in their corruption is not good for them. It's a merciful act for God to check their corruption, to stop their sin. Sometimes, it is a mercy of God to thwart your plans. Hear that carefully. Sometimes it is a mercy of God to thwart your plans. It's a mercy of God perhaps that the power went out, that your Wi-Fi signal was lost. Or that you missed your bus, or that you were late to that meeting, or that you didn't get that job, or that fellowship. Sometimes it's the mercy of God to thwart our plans, especially if those plans are sinful and seek to raise up our own name. 
Friends, have you ever found yourself frustrated that your way is blocked over and over and over again? Yes, sometimes God might be frustrating you. And you need to think of that perhaps as a mercy from Him. We shouldn't think that God was afraid of this united and rebellious humanity. What God is concerned with in this condescension is their, their depravity limited to smaller groups and settings. And so in verse 7, we hear God reassert Himself as the ruler of the nations. Notice what He says in verse 7. He takes His Creator's language back. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Remember the people said, let us, let us in verse 3, 4. Here this language is mirrored. God is reclaiming His throne as the Creator. Making them know that He's the Creator. And I think this let us, this plural language here, is a hint at an intra-Trinitarian dialogue. They agree. The three persons of the triune God had agree upon the next action to take. Kind of like what we saw in Genesis chapter 1. Yahweh will make sure that His purpose of seeing the earth filled is accomplished. That's why He will multiply languages and thereby peoples and nations. And since their common languages broken up, their ability to work together, to conspire for rebellion, is limited. God lovingly brings ruin on their plans. Even the city appears to be left kind of in a heap. You see, verse 8 ends like this. They left off building the city. Kind of just a few stones there, it feels like. The work stopped because their plans were ruined. And notice in verse 9 that God can thwart man's plans, like building a tower into the sky. But man cannot thwart God's plans, like filling the earth with his image bearers. Right? That was God's plan. And he made it happen. The Creator brought confusion. And we're told that this is why this place was called Babel, which literally means confusion. This name Babel, as I said, will soon become synonymous in the Old Testament with Babylon. And it isn't interesting that Babylon would one day be ruled by Nebuchadnezzar. He thought that he was great. I built this whole city. I did it. And then, what happened to him? Oh, the Lord confused him and sent him into the field and acting like an animal. In fact, at the end of the Bible, Babylon is symbolic of rebellion against God, human rebellion against God. And if you read Revelation 18, you'll see that Babylon falls. God face, faces God's judgment and is ruined. Mankind's attempts to rebel against God will always, one day, face ruin. Now just stop and ask yourself a question for a moment. What would this have meant to kind of the first readers of the book? What would have meant for those Israelites standing at Mount Sinai, receiving the commands of God? It would have at least meant that they should not refuse the voice of Him who is speaking. Don't reject God's voice like those people at Babel did. It would have meant that they should trust Him and obey Him. It would have meant that they should seek to make His name great by honoring His place as God. Directing all praise to Him and trusting Him for divine protection. But what about you? What does this tower mean for you? Well, friend, you should be warned in your attempts to rebel against God. Friend, if you are living in rebellion against God, be warned by Babel. If you're living kind of a life independent of God, if you're failing to give Him the praise that's due to His name, the submission that He deserves, if you're attempting to seek security and safety apart from Him, Learn the ruin of Babel's rebellion. One day, the Lord Jesus will come down personally, physically, visibly. He will confront. He will condemn. 
He will judge those who rebelled against him. You should leave your rebellion behind and escape the ruin of judgment and receive Jesus as Lord, allowing him to order your life and direct your steps. He is ready to receive you in mercy and grace and love. And as the people of God, as Christians, what does this passage mean for us? This part about Babel. We're here united together. And we should endeavor to make sure that our plans and our purposes are aimed at making God's name great. We want to build His kingdom and not our own. It is part of the reason why we pray for other churches in the pastoral prayer every Sunday. We cannot be so consumed with our church that we're not concerned with what God is doing in the world. It's why we want to support new missionaries like Christopher and Iris. It's why the elders have invited John Flores to come and preach to us in a couple of weeks and to, talk, and to be with us in the Sunday School Hour, to talk about his ministry in Jordan. All of these things help us to keep kind of a worldwide perspective, looking at what God is doing in the world. And we want to be faithful to build God's name up in the nations. And we need to be comforted and encouraged that he will and is building his kingdom. In fact, the verses that close, Genesis 11, teach us this very truth. Let's turn and briefly consider our third and final point, redemption, the salvation of the nations by God's Son. Follow along as I read verses 10 to 13 in Genesis chapter 11. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And the list kind of keeps going on from Shem to Terah there in verse 26. Now, if these verses have a familiar ring to them, uh, then that's because they follow the formula that we actually discovered in Genesis chapter 5. Remember in Genesis 5 we encountered a long genealogy where we read so-and-so fathered so-and-so and had other sons and daughters. And so-and-so fathered so-and-so and had other sons and daughters. But that genealogy included the famous phrase, and he died. And he died. Now, we actually don't have that phrase here, do we? And there's a reason. The emphasis here is not judgment, but mercy. In Genesis 5, Moses wanted to convince us that the wages of sin is death, as he prepared us for the flood account. But here in Genesis 11, Moses wants to assure us that God is going to make good on his promise to send his seed and son, despite the rebellion. He's going to send the Redeemer. Ruin will not be the last word. Redemption will be the last word. Sin will not be the last word. The seed, the Son, He will be the last word. The Word made flesh. And again, Moses, he's decided to split Shem's descendants on both sides of the tower to narrow our focus in the second half of Shem's line to Abram. So in Genesis 5, Adam's descendants were traced from Noah, from, from Adam, to Noah, a man of hope. And now in Genesis 11, Shem's descendants are traced to Abram, kind of the next man of hope in the biblical storyline. By putting this genealogy on the other side of the tower, Moses is saying to his readers and to us, hey, pay attention. This is the line through which God's promised seed will come. This is the line that will reverse the curse at Babel. This is the line through whom God is going to answer the problem of man's rebellion and his impending eternal ruin by sending his son. This is the line of redemption. 
Skip down to verse 24. Start reading with me. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram. A nice round number of 70 emerging there. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, upon hearing these verses, the first readers, the first hearers, would have smiled. All those standing at Mount Sinai would have heard of Father Abram and Baron Sarah. Uh, they would have known that Father Abram had many sons. Many sons had Father Abram. And they were many of them standing there. Maybe there were almost two million of them that came out of Egypt. They would have smiled. They would have remembered, too, what God had done in Egypt. They would have remembered how they built store cities and towers for Egypt. How they had to build them with bricks and mortar, like we saw here in the Tower of Babel. They would have known that God made His name great by defeating the greatest superpower on the earth. All of their towers amounted to nothing in their battle with God. Ruining that nation and redeeming His people. People standing on Mount Sinai, Israelites, would have known that it was God who overcame barren Sarai's womb. Uh, they would have known that the line and the promised seed doesn't die in barren Sarai's womb, but was miraculously kept alive by God. You see, at Babel, God dispersed the nations and separated the people unto himself. He chose Shem's line to lead to Abram, and Abram's line to lead to David, and David's line to lead to Christ. It is only the God who rules the nations, who can send them everywhere he wants to, and perfectly discern and lead a line who could lead and guide all of history like this. We have all of these names because God cares about the names who will carry His promise on. Those first hearing the story would have held hope in their hearts that maybe their family would give birth to a son who would continue to carry the line of the seed and the Savior. And that hope continued on in the faithful people of God throughout the years until Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. God's son. And they called his name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus came to put an end to all of our rebellion. To rescue us from the ruin that we deserve. And to redeem us from all of our sins. And Jesus has done that by living a perfectly righteous life. He said that it was his good pleasure to do his Father's will. In John chapter 14 verse 13, Jesus expressed his desire for the Father to be glorified. By laying his life down on the cross for sinners like you and me. And on the cross, Jesus bore God the Father's wrath against sinful humanity. So that rather 
then all mankind be dispensed to hell, that many would be redeemed. And three days after his death on the cross, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now sinners can escape judgment and ruin through faith in Jesus Christ. Friend, turn from your sin and place your faith in the strong tower whose name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for sinners like you and me. He lived for sinners like you and me. He was raised from the grave for sinners like you and me so that we might be saved. And in fact, it's Christ's name. It is that strong tower. That strong tower is how you make it up to heaven. That's how you reach heaven, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ today. Beloved, dear Christian, you need to know that the scope of the story of Babel is wide. It's worldwide. Because in the Bible... Because of the salvation of God's Son, Babel is reversed. We've already read about it earlier this morning. Babel's reversed. Think about Psalm 2, for example. Remember, this was always God's intention to reverse Babel. Psalm 2, verse 8, the Father said to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of your earth, the earth your possession. They were all to come under one man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, Jesus did ask. And that's why before His ascension, he sent his disciples out to proclaim his name among the nations in the Great Commission. Turn your Bibles to Acts 2. We were there earlier in the service. I want us to be there again. That's page 909, I believe, of the Bibles provided. Acts chapter 2. We're especially going to see Jesus' activity after he ascended into heaven in Acts 2. Here we see the languages of the nations made clear in a special moment of redemptive history. All because of Jesus Christ. Find verse 1 of Acts chapter 2. And notice some of the similarities to, Babel, to, to what happened at Babel. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, just like at Babel. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, one, in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Here's the world gathered together again. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Confused about how is this happening? We're hearing one another. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see this, friends? They were all in one place, verse 1, all filled with the same Spirit, God's Spirit. They were speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, as the end of verse 4 says. Now, if you know your biblical geography, then you know that Luke's description, actually, the regions move generally from kind of east to west and north to south, covering all four corners of the earth. So what we're seeing in Acts 2, as our brother William pointed out earlier, was a reversal of the Tower of Babel. The reversal, the kind of restoration of the kingdom of God. And this restoration of God's kingdom 
will be of those who come from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Because Jesus, he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world, the king of the nations. The nations that were physically dispersed at Babel are being spiritually reunited to one another in Jesus Christ. So that one day the nations will gather around his throne and make his name great. And in fact, this is where I want us to conclude. We start at the beginning of our Bibles, the book of Genesis. I want us to go to the book of Revelation. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I believe that's on page uh, 1032 of the Bibles provided. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. So in, in Genesis 10 and 11, we saw the spread of sin among the nations. The nations subvert God's name and worship of God. But God remained committed to His promises to send His Son and seed, so that the nations might know His salvation. And Jesus has made that happen. Pentecost was the initial outburst of it. The collection of the nations under the sovereign Savior. We rejoice. The Son has come. We need to see our final destiny. That's what we see here. Christian, this is your final destiny. Right here in Revelation 7, 9 and 10. This is John's vision. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb beloved here is our God and Savior in his rightful place on his throne here is our God receiving his rightful praise from the nations all of them and here are God's people perfectly safe in glory because of the blood of the Lamb. Will you be there? Your rebellion doesn't have to end in eternal ruin. It can end in eternal redemption like we see here. It can end in glory with Christ because of Christ. God has exalted the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Will you Will you lay your name low and lift Jesus' name high? Will you lift up Jesus' name, the one who is the Redeemer, the Bridegroom, the Good Shepherd, the Bread of Life, the Light of the World, the Author and Finisher of Faith, the Lamb of God, and the Lord of all? Will you lay your name low and lift Jesus' name high? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask for your grace by your spirit to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ day by day, even now in this very moment. Father, we pray and ask that you would forgive us for lifting our names up and forgetting you. Father, we give you thanks that there is mercy and pardon in the great name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His blood covers all of our sins. We give you thanks that he was nailed to the cross for the nations of the earth. All those who would turn from their sin, repent and believe in him. Father, we pray and ask that Christ would be made great in our church family, in our workplaces, in our homes, and wherever we go. Would you do this for your glory's sake? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.